2: or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from howstuffworks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen and I'm Caroline. And today's episode is one we promised y'all a while back and we are true to our word. So, this is our episode on social work and social workers and First of all, shout out to the social workers listening. Yeah, y'all are a hardworking,
0: passionate bunch of people who are underappreciated and underpaid across the country. And you
3: know what, Caroline? Some of our best friends are social workers.
0: <laughs> it's true. And, uh, two, two of my close friends are social workers and they, I don't think I've met two more passionate people about
3: children, honestly. Yeah, I can say the exact same thing. Uh, one of my best friends is a social worker working specifically with, uh, survivors of domestic violence and she's just like a superhero. Yeah. A living superhero.
0: Yeah, they, they deal with a lot and especially if any social workers out there themselves have, um, histories with things like domestic abuse or, or, or molestation or anything, um, the job is that much harder. It can be very triggering if you decide to pursue that line of work because of a desire to help others from having to go through it themselves.
3: And we received a lot of yes, please do that requests after we mentioned on our episode about women and welfare a while back that we were considering talking about um, social work on an episode. So we wanted to share just a little bit of the feedback that we were already hearing from uh, some of you out there listening who are also in the field. Yeah, listener Anna uh,
0: wrote in with several points that she wanted to address, things like safety in the field, uh, how she and her colleagues have been threatened with physical violence or attacked by clients, both children and adults alike. Uh, she pointed out that men are generally in upper management while women tend to be on the front lines, which, of course, follows along with so many things we've talked about on the podcast before where men do tend to be in the roles of power while women are expected to be the nurturers. Uh, she said many jobs want a master's degree, which is hard to pay back with a low-paying job. And in some areas where rent is high, social workers, even with master's degrees, can't afford rent and have to live in Section 8 housing. She also talks about agencies being in the dark ages when it comes to technology. In addition to a lot of the same issues you see when you just talk about nonprofits in general, which is things like high turnover rate,
3: burnout, and low compensation. And uh, some fans on Facebook also requested that we address the issue of the negative stereotyping of social workers and the perception that they are just out there to take your kids away. Right. The, the baby snatcher stereotype that a social worker,
0: rather than being there to help facilitate A safer family environment
3: is there to simply remove children from the home. And I gotta say that the biggest challenge of researching for this episode and, and condensing this into a podcast is just how much social work covers. I mean, across the lifespan, across all sorts of issues and relationships, social workers are there. And in fact, Social workers comprise the largest group of mental health professionals in the United States, more than psychiatrists, psychologists, and psychiatric nurses, combined. I did not know
0: that. No, there are 200,000 clinically trained social workers in the United States alone, and the primary mission of what they do, according to the National Association of Social Workers Code of Ethics is quote, to enhance human well-being and help meet the basic human needs of all people with particular attention to the needs and empowerment of people who are vulnerable, oppressed, and living in poverty,
3: and as part of that, some of these specific issues that social work tackles include poverty, discrimination, abuse, addiction, physical illness, divorce, uh, housing, domestic violence, unemployment, educational problems, disability, mental illness, and also really focusing in on crisis prevention, as well as individual, family, and community counseling
0: and they work all over the place i mean especially uh in the u.s department of veterans affairs but you can find social workers in schools and hospitals mental health clinics and senior centers uh even in private practices not to mention prisons the military companies and in so many wide and varied public and private agencies serving
3: people in need and a lot of times uh, when natural disasters happen and uh, the American Red Cross takes uh, disaster relief mental health specialists down there, a lot of them are volunteer social workers. Because social workers are incredible. Yeah. And like this is a total we
0: hope this is a total love letter to you about the hard work that you do, because I do know that my social worker friends, by virtue of working for the state, they cannot be very political outwardly, um, and they certainly would not want to be caught at a protest for one way or the other politically, for instance.
3: Um, they are passionate about just volunteering and being involved. And I texted uh, my social work bestie uh yesterday before we were coming in to record this episode, Caroline saying, like, okay, what is something that, you know, we should definitely emphasize? Um and she responded that Lots of social workers think very macro, but work on a micro level because they really believe in individual client advocacy and the importance of helping that one person. And she also emphasized like their passion, collective passion for social justice, because social justice is really front and center and even part of the NASW code of ethics and a major appeal to. People who are deciding whether they would want to go into social work or counseling um, because while social workers and counselors might do similar things, they are not the same thing as as you might ama- imagine since they have different names. Um, first of all, they require different degrees, but also – Counseling is more specific to the individual and the setting, whereas social workers are looking to improve quality of life. Um, the casework is going to address not just the individuals, but also environmental issues across all aspects of their life and cultures um, that might include things like staying in touch with teachers and employers and um, so, if you are someone who's not familiar with social work, but you like things like destigmatized mental health, healthcare access for seniors and the disabled, workers' compensation, and legal protections against discrimination based on race, gender, faith, sexual orientation, et cetera, well, you have social workers to thank for that.
0: Well, yeah, they've been on the front lines, literally and figuratively, of these movements for. I mean, I want to say our country's history, not that you would call the people who did this type of work and activism early in our country social workers. Um, but the way that social work evolved, it evolved out
3: of a tradition of uh, advocating for the whole person. And we found a terrific condensed history of social work, um, because if it were not a condensed <laughs> history, we would still be reading for weeks. Um, but over at uh, Michigan State University's School of Social Work, they have a terrific history that starts out emphasizing how just these basic concepts of mutual aid and charity that are foundational to American social work have really intersectional roots, both in terms of religions and cultures. It's not just... Christian and European immigrants who contributed to all of this, you have values found in the Quran and mutual aid practices um, from all sorts of both indigenous and uh, industrialized cultures.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I mean this should sound familiar to you if you listen to our last episode on nonprofits. Well, there's a lot of overlap, obviously, when you look at the origins of our modern nonprofit sector and our modern social work. Landscape. It comes a lot out of not only those uh, mutually beneficial cultural practices in this country across all sorts of cultures, but it really also comes out of a lot of efforts in the progressive era to address issues that come along with urbanization, industrialization, and immigration.
3: Yeah, massive issues with poverty, child welfare, and mental health from the get-go. We're talking pre-American Revolution even. Um, and <laughs> before social workers existed, uh, these volunteers who would engage in this kind of charitable work were called friendly visitors, which... <laughs> Yeah. It sounds so creepy, right? It sounds really creepy. It also kinda sounds like your period. <laughs> I <laughs> But not always the friendly visitor. Uh yeah, the friendly visitors sounds like uh a horror movie. Oh yeah. Title. It's like the Babadook. Yes, yes. Um but these friendly visitors were indeed friendly. Um <laughs> they were usually white and wealthier, private individuals who had like terrific intentions, um, but they thought that they could sort of morally influence the poor out of poverty uh, through organizations like the Association for the Improvement of the Condition of the Poor and the Children's Aid Society. Um, but on the upshot. These people were coming face to face with the substandard living conditions. This was raising the alarm bells about the need to address things like uh, poverty and child labor. Yeah. And I mean, keep in mind, too, the the Civil War, which had
0: obviously a massive (laughs) impact on the way that our country is shaped and the way that we treat each other. Um, It spurred massive private social welfare initiatives like the Red Cross. So we talked in our nonprofit episode. Kristen mentioned in that in that episode about how, you know, you see a wave of philanthropy as people are donating money to communities that have been devastated. You see people coming together to make bandages and clothes for soldiers and the poor. And it's really no different when it comes to the how the Civil War relates to the history
3: of social work. And did you know, Caroline, because I didn't before reading for this podcast, that the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, simply known as the Freedmen's Bureau, was the first federal social welfare program. Um, it was established to assist emancipated slaves during Reconstruction and and basically be like, okay, um, enslaved people, you all are free. White people in the South, y'all are Still really racist, probably. So we're going to make sure that everybody gets along and that y'all don't just enslave them again. Um, but it was only in existence officially from 1865 to 1872. And really, it was only in its first year that it had as much like the most like steam and support um, and military backing, and then it kind of petered out, but not before establishing Howard University and the Hampton Institute. I didn't. That's the part that I w- didn't know. Yeah. Oh, you knew about the Freedmen's Bureau. I didn't know about the Freedmen's well, Bureau. Well, well, Carolyn. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to come full circle. With Hampton very soon. All right. Now, not surprisingly, because this is spenty,
0: women were extremely influential in establishing things like settlement houses, which focused on environmental rather than individual sources of poverty. So rather than saying it's your fault, you are failing in some way, and therefore you are in poverty, it addressed the ways that people were living and tried to introduce, uh, better hygiene, a better sense of community. Uh, there was one settlement house that even had a gymnasium and places to do laundry. Yeah.
3: I mean, um, rather than say friendly visitors, who would maybe come over and then go back. It sounds like they're going to tickle you. Honestly, I'm <laughs> going to
0: be out. Friendly visitors, it sounds like they're wearing Mickey Mouse gloves, and they're going to tickle uh, you. But anyway.
3: Like pajama grams. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they they didn't do all that much, it doesn't seem like, from from our reading to really address the issues of living in More squalid conditions, you know, whereas settlement houses were intentionally established in poorer neighborhoods to show people how they could live and improve their living conditions and also to work to connect them to employment opportunities, with a particular focus on women and children.
0: Yeah, and so in 1886, New York's Neighborhood Guild was the first such settlement house, and then in 1889, we get a name that should probably be at least vaguely familiar to Sminty listeners: uh, Jane Addams and Ellen Gates Starr founded Chicago's Hull House. And by the way, Addams. Was the first woman to receive the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931.
3: Not too shabby, Jane. Uh, not too shabby indeed. And we talk about Jane, uh, in our episode on Boston Marriages, which you can go back and listen to if you haven't already. And Stuff You Missed in History class has, uh, devoted podcast episodes to Jane Addams and the Hull House. And while we could also spend the next, I don't know, five hours talking <laughs> about Jane Adams because she did such incredible work and was so well-respected and is really the godmother of social work in a lot of ways, instead, because information about her is so accessible, we want to – highlight some of her unsung black contemporaries who are doing equally important work. Um, so first off, let's just note that in 1898, the first formal social work training program was established in what would become Columbia University's School of Social Work. And by 1919, there were 17 schools of social work in the United States. So things are really picking up. And women are really at the forefront of this developing field. But if you look at histories of social work, most of the time, you see white women who absolutely were at the forefront of that field and who were absolutely doing incredible work. But you know what? We want to give some credit where credit is due, uh, because also, y'all, A lot of progressive era settlements at this time were exclusively staffed by and served white people. But, of course, black communities needed social reform.
0: Yeah, focusing just on the white women and just on the Jane Addams's, while that tells a significant portion of the story, is definitely not the full story. So you have amazing women like Janie Porter Barrett, who... Kristen, graduated from the Hampton Institute. Call back. (laughs) And she founded the Locust Street Settlement House in 1890 in Hampton, Virginia, which was the first United States settlement house for African-Americans. And she founded it to help girls and women to become good homemakers and to improve the social life of the community.
3: Yeah, Barrett started out. Just inviting local kids into her home and almost like a, a, a daycare of sorts. Um, and then it developed into this settlement house. And then in 1915, she founded the Virginia Industrial School for Colored Girls specifically to serve previously incarcerated girls. And double callback to our episode on women in nonprofits. They received huge philanthropic help from the Russell Sage Foundation, which was started by a woman, not a man named Russell.
0: Yeah, Russell was the woman's husband. Although it was Russell's money, (laughs) Russell's billions. Yeah, you got to love billions. Um, And then we have to introduce you to... Sarah Fernandez, she is another Hampton grad and another contemporary of Jane Adams who ended up in Baltimore's poor Black Bloodfield neighborhood uh to establish settlement houses there and also in Rhode Island for Black residents. Uh she helped revitalize blighted black neighborhoods with a public library, infant daycare center, kindergarten, and even some home-ex style classes for girls. And she championed in general just better living, working in social conditions for black people, especially black women. And this whole education thing and this daycare thing is really something you see come up again and again in the progressive era. It's sort of the idea behind like Head Start about we need to set our children off However, young, on the right foot, you see so many club women of this era, black or white, uh helping to establish daycares to not only help working mothers, the working poor who had to like go to work in someone else's home, probably cleaning, um but to also help those children grow up to maybe have a better life.
3: Yeah, and and Fernandez really was one of the leading social workers of her time. I mean, she was renowned, really. Um, and she loved her social work so much, by the way, that uh, she was also a poet and is considered part of the Harlem Renaissance. Um And in one of her poems, Denial, uh, she writes, Yet oftentimes, as I make the daily round, of crowded city byways I've found shining up from the mark and slum of things, something so beautiful my spirit sings. Aww. And that to me is the heart of a social worker. Yeah. I think yeah,
0: that sums it up really well. And two other examples of incredible women giving back to their communities are Ertha White in Jacksonville, Florida, and Victoria Matthews in New York, who started the White Rose Industrial Association for Young Black
3: Working Women and helped found the National Association of Colored Women. And this is coming from a book by Barbara Levy Simon, The Empowerment Tradition in American Social Work, A History. And uh, we just wanted to mention them because uh, white, for instance, is another woman who looked around at her black community and said, "Well, there are uh, no white-led settlements here, so I'll start one." Um, and also, too, there were. Uh, this was common among uh, certain immigrant groups, and Jewish communities, and the black community, where they did prefer and and trusted more. Um, charity of this sort that came from within their own community, um, which also makes sense. So there is even a deeper value to that. Um and people like Sarah Fernandez were also instrumental in mobilizing black women uh in the suffrage movement as well. So there is a lot going on yeah, uh, yeah, definitely at the turn of the century,
0: there's a lot going on in terms of social work, early social work. There were 400 settlement houses across the U.S. by 1910. And don't think there weren't ripple effects. The effects that these women and their work had were not limited to just what was going on within the walls of the settlement homes. They affected the juvenile court system, uh, the widow's pension programs, child labor laws, public health reform, not to mention organizations like the Women's Trade Union League, the Urban League, and the
3: NAACP. And to just show you how uh, these Earlier women in this early history of social work are making so much influence now that we're getting into even uh, government. In 1912, Hull House's Julia Lathrop establishes the Federal Children's Bureau. So social work is becoming its own for real official thing. Thing validated and recognized even by the U.S. government. And we're going to talk about a pivotal moment in the professionalization and standardization of social work when we come right back from a quick break.
0: Can I rant for a sec? Please. Please.
1: start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily.
2: To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: One thing that I was really happy to note in our research— was that it was a woman person at the forefront of calling for more standardization within the field. Normally, historically, when you and I talk about things like this, Kristen, it is a man coming into an established, more feminized field and calling for more standardization and professionalization so that he can make more money, uh, helming it, whatever it is. But... We have a Mary Ellen Richmond who was one of the first to call for such standardization and she actually delivered a speech at the 1897 National Conference of Charities and Correction calling for not only more standardization, there I said it again, but also more training for social workers.
3: Yeah, and she knew what she was talking about. Uh, her book, Social Diagnosis, was one of the first social work books to incorporate scientific principles from law, medicine, psychology, psychiatry, and history. So, excellent idea. Way to go. W- but what does it take to get the ball rolling, to get people to really pay attention? A dude saying it. So I spoke too soon. Well, no. I mean, Mary Ellen Richmond is still a badass. She will never not be a badass. <laughs> she will never not be the first, but it was Dr. Abraham Flexner. It's totally a fake name. <laughs> who, uh, who really convinced the field that it needed to ratchet up its standards. It needed to flex its standards. Oh. Uh, yeah, in nineteen
0: fifteen he gave a speech called Is Social Work a Profession? And it basically dismissed a uh, social workers' lack of specificity, technical skills, or specialized knowledge. So never mind the incredible life changing work that all of these people had been doing up to this point. Um he's just going to dismiss a lot of those methods. And so by the nineteen twenties Thanks to Flexner's advocacy, but also of course Mary Ellen Richmond's work, uh, casework emerged as the dominant form of professional social work
3: in the US. And listen, Flexner delivered that speech at the same conference that Richmond had in 1897. Oh. So maybe it was a dude, maybe it was also the 17 years in between. I don't know. But so social workers listening, if casework is the bane of your existence, then just blame Dr. Abraham Flexner. (laughs) But in terms of the rising status of social work, it was really the Great Depression and two world wars that rapidly expanded its scope and influence. Because in terms of the Great Depression, when everybody's poor, Uh we're like, oh, maybe maybe poor people aren't Deserving or undeserving or morally and intellectually broken people. Maybe we could use some social services. And this is when we are introduced to the concept and now highly politicized concept of entitlements and we don't want to rehash a lot of this detail that we went into in our episode, uh, Welfare Queens, uh, but we do want to shout out Frances Perkins, who was a social worker and also uh, appointed to FDR's cabinet. She was the first female cabinet member, and she was the Treasury Secretary and responsible, really, for the 1935 Social Security Act, uh, someone who we could absolutely easily devote a whole podcast to, but you'll learn a little bit more about her and this whole welfare process um, and how it really started for white people. If you go back and listen to the episode titled Welfare Queens, in which we bust up that racist stereotype and sort of like we did with Jane Addams, instead of spending all our time on Perkins, we want to talk about someone you probably definitely haven't heard of. Yeah, that's Thyra J.
0: Edwards. And reading her biography and her accomplishments, it's overwhelming. I mean, the woman was, she was brilliant. She was undaunted. She was driven. Um, And yet, still, in 1944, she was called just one of the most outstanding Negro women in the world, rather than just what she was, which is one of the most outstanding women in the world But overshadowing some of her incredible legacy and her incredible work is the fact that when she was working, the political climate was such that anyone who was in any way connected to communism, socialism, the Communist Party was immediately suspect. And Edwards was. She was a supporter of the Communist Party in the United
3: States, and she did travel abroad but well before that, before she becomes a globetrotter and famous international journalist as well as a social worker, she travels to Gary, Indiana, where she lives in the 1920s. And it's there, as her biography describes, she builds a national reputation as a social worker, club woman, speaker, and interracial activist. Um, and child welfare was really – her core passion. And she also, though, was not interested in only addressing the issues of black communities and maintaining segregation. She mm-hmm. wanted to see interracial change. And y'all, this is happening in the 1920s. So a woman definitely ahead of her time because um, even through post-war American social work theory. The idea was that black social workers should only work with black communities and vice versa, whereas Edwards took a very intersectional approach to her work and insisted that that was you know, the best way to do it. Um, she eventually became the executive director of the Congress of American Women, uh, during World War II. She traveled abroad and became a world famous journalist. Uh, she established the first organization to help children Holocaust survivors in Rome. Um, this woman did so much and regardless of the community that she was helping, obviously, like her devotion was to civil rights uh, for her fellow black community. Um, she was buds, for instance, with labor leader A. Philip Randolph, who was also one of the big six of the civil rights movement. Um, and considering all of that, when I found her through this research, I was so stunned that I had never heard of her. Yeah, well,
0: especially after all of these years of doing Sminty. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. So it's it's no surprise that your average human person out there might not have heard of her. She's I mean,
3: incredible. And if you want to learn more about her, which I do, uh, Greg Andrews wrote a well-reviewed biography of her, Thyra J. Edwards, Black Activists in the Global Freedom Struggle. And... I'm just I'm just still blown away that aside from his book and reviews of his book online and um an entry of about her over at blackpast.org and here and there you really got to dig to find her. Well,
0: yeah, which is true. I mean, despite her fame and despite all of the things she accomplished in her day, like that's just so true of so many of these amazing women especially black women of of that era. But meanwhile, while this is going on, uh, professionalization of the field is continuing. In 1952, you get the formation of the Council on Social Work Education. And in 1955, the establishment of the National Association of Social Workers. And there was another amazing woman around this time who was keeping a very busy... This is a woman who, again, like... All of these women. So incredible. And we could also fill an entire episode about Dorothy Height, uh, who was trained as a social worker and who started her career as a New York welfare office caseworker in the 1940s. She also oversaw the YWCA's desegregation across all of its facilities, then took the helm of the National Council of Negro Women from 1957 to 97. Uh, tackling programs uh, around voting rights, poverty, and AIDS. This woman did not
3: stop. No. I mean, and, and that's just one of the many things she was doing during that window. For instance, in 1971, she helped found the National Women's Political Caucus. Um, Obama calls her the godmother of the civil rights movement and a hero to so many Americans um, at his inauguration. She was seated right up there um, with the first family. And President Bill Clinton also awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And this laundry list of accomplishments and commitments that Haidt had goes to show really the scope of social work, something that might seem like, like a minimal kind of job, but it actually is very much linked with our history and culture of civil rights and activism and politics. Because again, at the heart of social work is social justice. And Dorothy Height uh, is an embodiment of that.
0: Yeah. And her uh, her obituary in The New York Times actually reminded me of our episode that we did on Polly Murray because they credit her in the obituary with treating the problems of equality for women and equality for African-Americans as a seamless whole, merging concerns that had been largely historically separate. Um, Just further driving home that they're have always been so many incredible and inspirational black women who have recognized the importance of addressing both parts of of their identity or or these two parts
3: of their identity and how they interact with each other. And jumping back to what was happening in the social work field, um, once we get into the civil rights era, uh, by this point from around the 1940s to the 1960s, it was really middle class white people who were overwhelmingly benefiting from newly established public welfare agencies like the Department of Health, Education and Welfare, which, again, uh, if you want to learn more about this, go back and listen to our episode on uh, welfare queens. And that leads us, though, to the 1960s and LBJ's War on Poverty which really starts this back and forth of government funded public assistance and social welfare programs where you have someone like Reagan coming in being like, oh, no, government is way too big. We got to rein it in. And the 80s were not very fun for social workers uh, because those Federal cuts under Reagan dovetailed with things like the crack epidemic. Um, and then once we get into the Clinton administration, he inherits a massive deficit and uh, a very uh, polarized Congress who has little interest in helping him. And he is somewhat stymied into signing the controversial Welfare Reform Act of 1996, which uh, some would say, did irrevocable damage to at least federally funded um, social assistance and so-called entitlements. So I think that's part of why social work gets a bad rap, because it's been politicized. It's been politicized and has gotten bogged down in a lot of government bureaucracy. Um, and if we look at the bird's eye landscape of social work today, you all it's hard out there. Mm. For a social work agency, but plenty of jobs to be had. Hello, if you if you're thinking about college or a new field or a new job, consider social work because America needs you. Yeah, I mean, as our parents and
0: grandparents are aging, there is going to be that growing demand in healthcare and social assistance. Um, but our growing pains in the meantime. For social workers are going to involve growing caseloads and social workers, just like workers in nonprofits, are seeing higher turnover and are struggling
3: with things like reaching people in more distant rural areas. And because there are simply not enough bodies um, to fill all of the jobs needed, uh, you're seeing more outsourcing, which then also spirals back to larger caseloads on the existing social workers. And it's the same kind of spiral that we talked about um, with nonprofits. Um, so there, there is a desperate need there. The, the supply and demand is completely imbalanced. Um, but if we look at who is meeting the demand, 84 percent are women. 84% are women and women making not a ton of money. The median pay median is 45900 The average is about 51000
0: Yeah, my social worker friends would laugh bitterly at that $45,900 number. Um, and as would a lot of guys, frankly, and I'm not trying to be a jerk about it, but dudes, According to the numbers, just don't want to be social workers. Um, in 2013, Jack Fischel at Mike suggested that it's kind of a mix of things, really, that uh, you can attribute this to. Uh, you have the low pay. And a reputation for feminine gendering that result in just 10 percent of current male social workers even considering the profession before college. Um, It's just considered something that women do. It's nurturing. You're taking care of people. You're going into homes and holding babies or snatching
3: them, according to other stereotypes. And uh that stat was coming from a survey conducted by the National Association of Social Workers that also found that current male social workers were likeliest to be inspired to become one by exposure to another social worker hey, does this sound like a familiar refrain of seeing it to be it? That we talk about all the time in terms of women in STEM. There's not enough visibility. There aren't role models. Girls don't know they can be these things because we never see women in these roles. It's the same thing for social work. And you might say, like, ugh, why would I want to be a social work? Because isn't it just like you said, overwork, underpay, and government bureaucracy? Well, not necessarily. If you need a job, you're kind of shooting yourselves in the foot because it is an extremely fast-growing sector. And if you want to help other men out, uh, kind of pay it forward, the disproportionate number of clinical female social workers and mental health services might deter men from seeking services. So again, you might also be role modeling for men who n- not necessarily want to become social workers, but who could use some attention from a social worker. And male social workers, you guys can enjoy a wage gap. Yeah. Take advantage of the wage gap, guys. Come on down. What's not to love?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So according to a 2006 study, uh, the difference in average salaries for men and women working full time in a single social work job was just over $12,000. And so when you control for other factors like age, race, geography, uh, degree, urban or rural setting, blah, 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 um, that salary gap does drop to about just over $7,000. Um, so that means that overall the percentage wage gap between male and female social workers is about 14%. Which,
3: P.S., is higher than the national average. Um and guys, if you aren't convinced yet, <laughs> there are many studies do confirm a disproportionate number of men in social work management. You guys are putting the man in social work management. Uh, this was something that my social work bestie um, brought up in her text to me. And she was like, I don't know if this is just anecdotal or what, but I see a lot of incredibly talented women getting passed over by not-as-qualified men for a number of reasons, but it is an issue. And... Um Dear friend, if you are listening, it is not all in your head. Um, and that was something too, right? That our stuff I'm never told you listeners had pointed out,
0: right? Exactly. It is not in your head. And I, I've heard my social work friends talk about this, and their theories involve things like um, because men are so underrepresented, you want to show that a man is involved, that a man can be in charge, and that maybe a man, you know, is better able to somehow handle
3: the bureaucracy and the paperwork and the dirty work. And it's like, uh, there's nothing wrong with men being social work managers. Of it's not. just such an obviously imbalanced pipeline. Yeah. Um, and I
0: do wonder
3: though, like,
0: how much of that is, of course, you've got gendered norms and expectations, but how much are all of these individual people's backgrounds playing into this? I, I would be more interested to learn too. And social workers, I want to hear from you about, specific circumstances that lead certain people to want to be on those front lines, to want to be um, directly dealing with families and mental health and education, um, things like that, versus being in the office. You know, I, I, I would be interested to hear, too, like what it is about you and your lives that made you choose one over the other.
3: So with that... Let us know. Social workers listening. I'm sure you have lots of thoughts and hopefully you enjoyed, um, hearing about some of your foremothers. Um, I just, I, I just think it's pretty fascinating that this is a profession that women really developed and yet today men run. Huh. Not like we ever see that. <clears throat> that was the sound of. <laughs> our librarianship episode and our nonprofit episode, and our, and our teacher episode. Um, yeah. Um, so, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break.
1: Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers. kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
2: This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast, Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast
1: Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I have one here from Jane in response to our Mothers of Invention episode. Jane says, love the podcast, you keep me connected to my younger feminist self, I'm 65, while putting me in touch with how the younger generation thinks about things. As I was listening to Mothers of Invention, I saw the obit for Valerie Hunter Gordon, a British Army wife, and thought she deserved a shout out. By the time she had her third child in 1947 at 26, she figured there had to be a better way to deal with diapers. She crafted a washable outer garment from nylon parachute material and inserted a throwaway liner of cellulose wrapped in cotton wool, later switching to plastic. Dubbed the Paddy, P-A-D-D-I, it wasn't the first disposable diaper, but it helped sell more people on a product that, at first, struck many as extravagant. Keep up the good work. And Jane, thank you so
3: much for listening and alerting us to Valerie Hunter-Gordon. I have a letter here from Marty who writes, You cannot imagine how happy I was to find your amazing podcast last year. My favorite thing? It was recommended to me by my now 30-year-old daughter. That's right, CNC. I am that mom. Who may have not told you, but really the cool thing is you're telling me. I have learned amazing things by listening to your podcast and of some of the best discussions with my three grown daughters. Sminty has validated some of my opinions and has me questioning many things I never thought to question. I do not feel alienated from your show because of my age ever. As a mom, I can tell you that I am proud of you as I am proud of my own daughters for throwing a little light. Oh, Marty, thank you. Oh, that means so much. And thanks to your daughters for introducing you to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And listeners, if you have stuff to share with us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can do it. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn even more about social work, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. com. not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865.
0: Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association
2: member FDIC. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss,